This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Common Real. National Book Award-winning novelist Alice McDermott is the author of Charming Billy and After This and Someone in the Ninth Hour, among other books. Her newest, due in mid-August, is a collection of essays and reflections on writing titled What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction. We're excited to have one of those essays appear in the current issue of Commonweal, titled Things. We're even more excited to have Alice herself here with us to talk about her new book with Commonweal Managing Editor Katie Daniels. Their conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Katie. It's good to have you here today. Hi, Dominic. Good to be here. So uh, you got to speak with Alice McDermott, and I'm looking forward to this episode. So tell us a little bit about uh, what we're going to hear about today. Of course. It was a real pleasure getting to speak with Alice. We talked about her latest book, which is titled What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction. And as you mentioned, it's a collection of essays, lectures, and observations on the art of writing fiction. And these, of course, are drawn from Alice's many years as a writing teacher and her experiences as a novelist herself. One of these essays is called Things, and we were lucky enough to excerpt it in our July-August issue. It's about the significance that certain objects can take on in fiction and how a novice writer might think about that process. And I think something that comes across in that excerpt and in this book as a whole is Alice's deep enthusiasm for fiction and the care and attention she gives to each part of the writing process, from noticing the minute details of things to asking the big questions about art and meaning. And I think that comes across in our conversation as well. Well, that's really great. And I'm looking forward to hearing. Thanks, Katie. Thank you. Alice, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Thank you so much. Your new book is called What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction. So given the title, I have to ask, what about the baby? Where did your title come from? (laughs) Well, thank you. I probably shouldn't belabor you with the entire anecdote that developed that question. Essentially, it's a question that became a sort of mantra in some of the writing workshops I was teaching. And it was, it's basically when characters disappear, when characters get lost, when characters seem to appear and have no role. And it leads to the question, can any character in a work of fiction be inconsequential? You can have flat characters, you can have minor characters, certainly. But can a character be inconsequential? Because if a character is inconsequential, why is he or she in the story? When we read a work of fiction, we don't guess that there's a creative intelligence behind it. We know there is. Fiction, poetry, plays don't exist in nature. (laughs) They are created by a creative intelligence. And so that's what legitimizes the reader's question. Why is this character here if the character is of no consequence? And in some ways, at least for me as a reader, it proves that, yes, indeed, every created character, because every character in a work of fiction is the product of a creative intelligence, has consequence. You've written, at this point, eight novels, and you've taught writing for many years. What other lessons do you think readers can take away from this book, in addition to the importance of the characters and and respecting that creative intelligence? I hope that in some ways, uh, many of these are lectures that I've delivered 
craft lectures is what we call them in the trade, or pieces that I've written about the writing process. But I think it's as much about the experience of reading as it is the experience of writing. I am a reader first. Every writer I know was a reader first. I know a few writers who deny that, but I I don't believe them. All reading is a collaboration with a writer. That's the beauty of it. There's nothing else, I think, that we experience so intimately in our minds alone. It's the reader lends his or her inner voice, the voice with which we speak to ourselves, what we call thinking. (laughs) We lend that voice to another human being, the writer, when we enter into a book or a story or a poem. It's a collaboration that the writer asks certain things of the reader, just as the reader asks certain things of the writer, and that we work together. And it's work. It's it, Yes, there are the sit back and relax beach reads, okay. But you know, I'm talking here about the literary world, the, the literary work that has as its goal this collaboration between reader and writer in order to make sense of our lives. And you also quote from well-known writers like Toni Morrison and Gwendolyn Brooks and uh, Nabokov. And this all sort of leads into this really beautiful discussion about rereading, whether it's these literary classics or uh, first draft, and how that process can offer readers uh, a chance to make new connections within the text. In your words, it creates meaning and consequence, revealing itself, resonating page after page in the completed work. Why is the practice of rereading so important, do you think? What can writers learn from it? Well, again, I think it speaks to that collaboration. But I mean, there's rereading. You get to the end of a book, and that's a wonderful impulse. And you say, I want to go right back to the first page and read it again. That's lovely. But there's also rereading throughout your own life as a reader. So how you read a certain book when it's assigned to you when you're 15 and how you read it again at 55 is an entirely different experience. So there's that, and it's a great joy in that. There's also just the the simple, and, and I think sometimes we forget about the joy. It sounds like an assignment. I got to reread it. I got to pay more attention. I didn't get that metaphor. I forgot that fact by the time I got to page 300. I didn't understand how it ended. We have all that pressure. But there's also this great joy in the experience of something well-told, well-crafted, the beautiful use of our shared language. And again, that intimacy of just a reader and just a writer. And a lot of that joy, I think, comes from seeing the design of a work that you can't always apprehend first time. We're just trying to get it down. We're just trying to figure out where we are. We're trying to keep up with the writer. We're really doing our best. But to be able to sit back, you you mentioned Nabokov, who I think of as a kind of patron saint for, um, for the writer who understands the beauty of our language, which wasn't even his first language. But he talks about how lovely it would be if we as readers could take in a novel all at once, the way you step back and take in a painting. You don't look at one corner of a painting and then another corner of a painting and then go off and read it from left to right. You step back and you take in the whole work. Then maybe you go back and you look at the brushstrokes. It's quite the opposite with a novel. We have to read page by page. 
But rereading allows us that opportunity to step back and to, oh my gosh, look at how what happened on page 300 is set up here, is resonating from what happened on page 30. And there's just, that's just admiration for something well-crafted, which is a no-strings-attached joy. In other interviews and in this book as well, you draw a parallel between art and religious belief, uh, as you put it, the creative process and the process of faith. I'm interested in why the word process comes up here. Why do you think uh, it's a useful way of describing both art and faith? Yeah, I think there's, and again, it's a, a parallel, maybe misunderstanding that both writers and religious people or people of faith have to encounter. And that is, if you're a person of faith, you're done. You, you have faith, you understand everything, you can't be convinced otherwise, your mind is shut down, you've made the leap and to hell with you. you know? And then there's also that sense when readers looking at writers and saying, oh, well, I read your book and clearly you knew everything that was going to happen from the beginning. And clearly it was so easy to read. It must have been so easy to write. Clearly you just had it all outlined and then you just filled it in, nothing to it. So in both ways, it's in some ways discounting the process. For someone who says, I believe, but I struggle with that belief every day that there are times when I didn't believe. There were times when I don't didn't know what to believe. And I'm leaning towards this belief. And yet I can still entertain all kinds of other ways of looking at the world. Same for a writer, that just because the completed work seems so much of a piece, that doesn't discount the process it took to get there. That doesn't mean the writer didn't write 300 pages that you didn't get to see because they were tossed, or that there's not a stack of unfinished stories or novels that just didn't find their way. So it's the notion of working at it, working at anything that is worthwhile, that's meaningful. And so, yeah, it's that process, that, that attempt to discover. I think any writer starting out trying to tell a story is someone who is attempting to discover even if it's just the right way to tell the story. Just take it to that simple craft. Who's telling it? Where do I begin? Where do I end? How do I shape this story? I, just, I was just listening to a wonderful lecture by the critic Helen Bendler. She was talking about Jasper Johns, the artist and the poetry of Wallace Stevens. And she said, all art is the art of arranging. So this goes back to that whole idea of, the, of a creative intelligence. So even just the arranging takes work. Do I do it this way? Do I put it here? Do I start here? Do I let this person tell the story? So that's the process. And what we hope for as writers, as creative people, is somehow in all this mess, with all these options, all the ways we might arrange our story, we find the one that feels essential and right. And we don't know sometimes even how we discover it. But we've always had a sense the right way is there. You just have to find it. And I think there's a parallel to that for those of us who pursue <laughs> and think about matters of faith. You know, we have some sense that there's something to this, that there's a way of thinking about things that will 
bring sense to our lives, that will bring comfort to our sorrows. We're not quite sure what it is, but we're pursuing it. We're trying different things. We're looking at it in different ways, but always with the sense it's there. You write that for you, the best fiction is a proclamation in spite of our mortality, in spite of suffering and death and intractable time of our love for being alive. In some ways, this goes against the preference that you've observed in contemporary literary fiction and among contemporary readers for quote unquote sophisticated coolness and irony. Do you think that this perception of fiction, as you've put it, something that should be a source of surprise and delight, do you think it's changed at all? within this sort of new framework? Do we lose something? You know, I think we have to remember, and certainly those of us who brush up against the academic world especially have to remember, that there are all kinds of reasons for reading a book. And there are all kinds of books, and that's a good thing. And so when we're talking about literary fiction, as we're talking about fiction as art, that's not to disparage, again, the B-tree, the, the mystery reader and writer, the just, I just don't want to think about anything for a while. The world is crazy. Let me just start reading this book because I'll feel so good <laughs> sure. three pages in when I know how it's going to end, you know, and I'll be right. I mean, that's all legitimate. But I do think there's maybe a little bit of a carryover from storytelling as entertainment, as escapism, as don't make me think too much, that in some ways deprives us of that more complex appreciation and experience of reading something that feels difficult, that doesn't immediately start with a car crash or a murder or a rape, um, which I talk about (laughs) as being a little bit too easy and certainly too common. But that idea of appreciating the language itself, appreciating the means by which the story is told, being patient. This comes back to that whole collaboration. You know, the reader saying to the writer, I don't see where you're going, but I'll stay with you. I I will read with some attention. I will go back and reread if I feel like I'm not getting what you're telling me. But the result of that, That sense of this book, this story, this novel, this poem has made me see something either I wouldn't have seen otherwise or has transformed the way I see things every day, has taken what I just go barreling past in my life, relationships, emotions, moments, and made me see them anew. And even just that delight of, oh my gosh, look at the way. I can look at the world, not when I close the book, I'm going to go around looking at the world all the time. But in this moment, with this sentence that's so beautifully crafted, suddenly I see something I ha- that's familiar, but I hadn't seen it that way that I'd never seen before. And again, there's joy in that. It takes process. It takes a little bit more work. It's not just put my mind on hold <laughs> and, and let me be sort of swept away by obvious and familiar scenes and tropes. But what can we, reader and writer, get to that, again, gives us a sense that even if the world doesn't make sense, and even if it's all doom and gloom, and all we can do is be ironic about it, <laughs> um, that, but that sense that we're working together. We're using this art our wonderful, complex language, words that always have the potential 
to point us to things we hadn't seen. We're using that together, even just to comfort, just to have within the scope of this story some sense that we have the capacity to make sense. We'll be right back with Alice McDermott. Young people are the church, yet the church is facing significant challenges in reaching young adults and discerning and meeting their needs. The COVID-19 pandemic has only exacerbated decades-long trends in this relationship. Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut is proud to host the first Young Adults in the 21st Century Conference, which takes place on September 9th through September 11th. The gathering will bring a multi-generational approach and prayerful spirit to asking questions about and with young adults on a 21st century journey of faith. This year's conference will be virtual. For more information and to register, please visit sacredheart.edu slash youngadults. You've written, which I thought was funny, about how workshop feedback and lectures and book reviews and, you know, even manuals about the elements of style can sort of create a self-consciousness in us that leaves no room for the mystery that can just happen when you're reading fiction. How do you teach your students to make room for those moments of mystery when they start thinking about their own work? Maybe how have you done this in your own writing? So there's this wonderful shimmer of potential in every choice that the writer makes in telling a story. The craft part of that is, again, to make the assumption that the writer knew the meaning all along. The assumption that many readers make. Young writers think, I have to hand deliver meaning to this draft. And what you come to learn when you've been doing this for a while is that meaning reveals itself. And again, it goes back to it's the process that as the story begins to reveal itself to the writer, then the writer can go back and say, that was a really important detail. Out of that detail grows this change in the story, this plot line, this character, or I didn't need that detail at all. That was I was just slapping that down so I could get the writing going. So there is a sense that a story begins to reveal its own parameters and its own meaning. What that takes for the the writer is to be open to discovering that. So I put that baby in there and that baby's going to stay whether that baby has meaning or not because it's my story or I think that baby needs to stay, but I have yet to discover why, and I am obliged to do that. So it may be another draft and another draft or two, or I may have to write a whole separate story about that baby and see if if it's relevant, or maybe it's the story I really want to tell and the story I thought I was telling needs to be jettisoned. But it's it is that sense of obligation to your own work. And I and I'm a I've been teaching for long enough, and I've seen this so often, and I've had the experience in my own work. The process of writing itself, of of forming a sentence, especially when you're writing a story where all options are open. You're not trying to record something that actually happened. You're not trying to be a reporter. You're not trying to analyze data. (laughs) You're creating a world. 
all options are open to you and you're creating it with nothing other than language. But in doing that, you are calling on your entire autobiography because how else did you learn your first language except through living? So who you are and where you grew up and who taught you your first words and who you listened to and who you read and who you studied, all that is in some way working when you write your first sentence. And I think it's that process, that process of writing that really touches on the creative intelligence, the writer's subconscious. So in some way, you know your story better than you think you know it, but you have to pay attention to the words you're, you're putting down in order to discover it. So it is that constant going back, and, but always with the question, does this have consequence? Does this have meaning? And if it's arbitrary, do I know why it's arbitrary? It's okay to say, yeah, this is just, this is absurd. Okay, that's meaning. <laughs> you know, that's consequence. You know? <laughs> meaning even within the arbitrary. Exactly, exactly. I find that almost very comforting in a way, right? That there is this sort of capacity to be surprised by something you've written and upon reflection and revisiting, you realize, oh, I was actually, there's something there after all. Has there been any one moment where your writing students have really surprised you or yourself or maybe something that surprised you in your own process of writing? Yeah, I mean, I've, it, it's the best moment of teaching when, when you read a draft of, for a young writer and you see something, either a chain of events or a metaphor or a motif or a character who says something, does something, even the slightest gesture, and you see it and you see how it resonates through the piece and the writer hasn't seen it yet herself. And as soon as you point it out, and my feeling is eventually the writer would have seen it. (laughs) (laughs) But a writing instructor can say, oh my gosh, look what's happening here. Look what you've set up. And you see the lights come on and the young writer says, I was just, I didn't know what I was doing there. But now I know. So now I can go back. And now the story has more complexity than I realized when I started out. Now the story is something other than I thought it was going to be when I started out. And I've had the same experience too. And I think without it, I don't know why you would keep writing. You know, if I have a good story to tell and I know how it begins and ends, I'll just call somebody up and tell it or I'll tell it over a beer, you know, and we'll all laugh or we'll cry, you know. And and that's why. Well, I go through all this working at words and writing sentences and tossing them out and you know, because it's an act of discovery. It goes back to every writer is a reader. And as a writer, you're also the first reader of your own work. And so the things that we look for as readers surprise me, open my eyes, show me something I haven't seen before, give me a way of looking at the world, give me a way of looking at a character that seems exactly right, but I would not have ever seen it if I hadn't read this paragraph. That's what a writer asks of her own work. So if you're not feeling those, oh my gosh, I've lost control here. This character is taking over. That's wonderful. That's Then you're not enjoying your own work as a reader would. I love this anecdote in your book. You were visiting a third grade class and 
you told them that to be a writer was to have homework due for the rest of your life. And one of them asked you, well, what about after you finish a book? And you told them, you're never finished, kid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which, you know, (laughs) just picture the reaction. You you, you tie this into a line from Henry James, who wrote that we work in the dark, we do what we can, we give what we have. Our doubt is our passion and our passion is our task and all the rest is the madness of art. So to bring this conversation, you know, back to the beginning, what advice would you offer other writers who are perhaps in the dark? (laughs) Well, that's where we work. (laughs) I don't want to speak too much out of the academic world or sound in the least elitist about this profession because I'm amazed every day that someone such as myself got to enter it. But there is this, we can call it result of natural selection or a gift from whatever creative intelligence we we are willing to acknowledge. There are artists among us. We're not all artists. There are artists among us. And those who are artists are driven to paint, to compose, to tell stories, to work with language in whatever way they do. And that's wonderful. But it's also, it's a life sentence for those who are are stuck with it. You know, every artist doesn't have a happy Hollywood ending in his or her life, but it's that impulse that this is the way, not only is this the way that I make sense of my own existence in the world, but this is the way I am compelled to live, to offer whatever sense I come up with to my fellow human beings. So there is that sense of uh, it being a constant struggle, not to make it too dramatic. There's sacrifice involved, but there's also great benefits involved in pursuing a creative art. Most of us write our first stories or paint our first pictures as adults or compose our first music compositions or however you want to think about it, begin our arranging (laughs) of the world without anyone asking us to do it, without anyone saying the world is waiting for you. Something that has formed us makes us say, we have this impulse. This must be done. I've, one of the little beats of advice that, that I've included in the essays is the best piece of advice to a young writer is if you can do anything else, do it. And the most revelatory answer is, yeah, but I can't. I must do this. So yes, that means, all right, you've got homework due for the rest of your life and you're working in the dark for the rest of your life, doing what you can. It's a kind of madness, but you can't do anything else and wouldn't want to. Did you have a sense of when you knew that writing was, for lack of a better word, your, your particular sentence? <laughs> I do. It's a story I've told many times, but that, that doesn't make it any less true. <laughs> you know, I was a kid who always wrote. Lots of kids do. Doesn't mean they're going to be novelists. It's a way of making sense of the world. I have two older brothers who talked a lot and a father who pontificated at the dining room table. And I didn't have much chance to say anything. So writing was a way of remaking the world and getting my sentences completed and my thoughts down. And I, so I wrote a lot and it wasn't until I was in college and I didn't know what major I wanted. I just 
I went to Oswego State, way upstate New York, because it was the number three party school that year. And, and I had a region scholarship, so I had to go to a state school. And I took a class that was called The Nature of Nonfiction, because I knew I liked to write. And the first assignment was to write an uh, autobiographical essay. I talk about this a little bit in the book. And I went and I made up a story about two girls going in. One of them is having an abortion, underage girls. None of it ever happened. It wasn't nonfiction. <laughs> I made up the whole story. I made up the characters. I had never done that. I didn't know anybody who did that. And I brought this little st essay, I called it, in. And the professor, a wonderful retired Air Force colonel and journalist who was teaching this class, read my essay out loud and had it on the overhead projector and yelled at me about my terrible use of commas. And then afterwards said, McDermott, I want to talk to you after class. And I thought he was going to say, you can't make stuff up. This is called the nature of nonfiction. And what he said was, I got bad news for you, kid. You're a writer and you'll never shake it. And it was a very, I mean, it was a very precise moment for me because it was, he had done what the best teachers do. He told me what I already knew, but I probably wouldn't have known if he hadn't told me. And I knew at that moment there was no going back. Yeah, he was right. <laughs> Now watch. <laughs> that would be good. My parents weren't very happy about the news. <laughs> Alice McDermott's new book is titled, What About the Baby? Some Thoughts on the Art of Fiction, available in mid-August from Simon & Schuster. Alice's writing has also appeared at Commonweal with some frequency, and you can find that through our online archives. I also want to call your attention to some of the other great pieces in our summer fiction issue, including essays on Walker Percy and the queer Catholic imagination, a short story from Randy Boyagoda, an interview with Harper's Magazine editor Christopher Beha. It also features reviews of biographies of Philip Roth and Graham Greene, along with reviews of new novels from Jumpa Lahiri and Rachel Cuss. Thanks for listening. I'm Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>